As I begin tonight, I want to welcome uh, by video our Cedar Lake campus and uh, to say to you, I know that uh, that remodel is just underway and everything isn't quite perfect, but thank you for joining uh, with us through video in a message that I hope is a blessing to our entire congregation. This is a message that I have waited 44 years to give. This is my last sermon as a single man. This coming Saturday, I will be marrying the love of my life, Jennifer Terrell, who is here in this service, and it's going to be a really, really great day. My, my title tonight is intentional, The Bachelor Pastor, <laughs> Premarital Reflections on Singleness, Ministry, and Purity. I think the unusual circumstances of my marriage give me an opportunity to say some very important things uh, on, a number of, on a number of levels. And I want to make the most of this to the glory of God. Now, part of what is unusual here is my age. And I'll just tell you how old I am. I am 44 years and seven months old. I was born January 26th, 1968. And if the average age for a man to marry today is 28 years old, this means that I have had a little more time than most to think about these things. Some of what I want to share tonight. The second thing that's unusual is my role in the church. I have been a pastor for 20 years. I have been the senior pastor uh, here at Bethel for 15 years. And my observation is that bachelor pastors are more unusual than Packer fans at Soldier Field. <laughs> that is the truth. And frankly, are often treated like Packer fans at Soldier Field with all kinds of disparaging comments and questions of sexual orientation and the like. It is very, very similar. The third reason is that I am still technically single. And the reason that that is important is that within the single world, nothing is more annoying to singles than married pastors telling singles how they should feel. And so for at least six more days, I am still an insider. I am still speaking as a single man, and I hope uh, has uh, with the credibility that that provides to me. Now, many people over the years have misunderstood my singleness as some kind of a uh, monkish vow that I have taken where I am so committed to Jesus that I have no interest in marriage. I mean, Pastor Steve, he's so, he's so godly that he doesn't even notice 
women. And I want to tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, I have had getting married on my radar, on my high radar, ever since I went to college. Now, in high school, I dated girls and such, but it was, everybody knows they ain't going nowhere. Uh, But once you get to college, and once I got to college, I started, I really honestly started thinking about it. And uh, now, obviously, I wasn't in any uh, hurry. I wasn't desperate to get married. Uh, because I think anybody can get married if you want to get married. Somebody will say yes eventually. Uh, so it's not hard to get married. I've never viewed getting married as the goal. I've always wanted to marry well and to marry uh, a friend, lover, and companion. That's my three things that I say. So I would say rather than being monkish about it or an ascetic about it, I have been... Frankly, I think on the other side, where over time, this has become, in my judgment, looking back on it now, it has been too important to me. Now, you might be here going, oh, how can you say that marriage is too important? I mean, Hebrews 13 says that marriage be honored by all. And we know that marriage is a picture. It's a parable. It's a metaphor of the love of Christ with his church. And and uh, it's a picture also of the plurality and unity within the Trinitarian Godhead. I mean, what are you saying? How can you how can you suggest that maybe marriage has been held too high in your estimation? Well, here's what I mean by that. Like many other singles, I have thought about getting married many, 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 many times. And as the holidays come and go, uh, which is the hardest time of year if you're single, uh, I, I have especially thought about that. And over time, I have, uh, I think that I have, marriage has become almost like a kind of dream that would never happen. It becomes almost, larger than than life in fact i can tell you ever since i was 18 years old i almost every week of my life i have prayed very specifically for a wife and for my wife and i have gone on prayer walks and i have prayed and i've laid my heart out before god i've walked beaches in florida praying to god and i have prayed over and over i I should have calculated probably how many hundreds of times I have offered the prayer to God. God, I pray that you would provide for me what my heart really longs for, and that is for a wife. And I pray that you, if she, if that is to happen, and if she is out there somewhere, and in your sovereign hand you know who she is, I pray that you would protect her. I pray that you would develop Christian character in her. And I pray that you would give me eyes to see, to see Now, in my understanding, I don't think there's one person, but the kind of person that you would have me to marry. And so I've done that since I was 18 years old. And you got, you know what's aggravating when you're a faithful prayer for something like that? It's so aggravating to me to know guys who I'm pretty sure have never prayed one time for a wife. And it didn't even cross their mind that they should pray for a wife. And all of a sudden, they land some great, apparently great woman, and they get married, and you go to the wedding, and I just sometimes sit there and I think, 
kind of like, God, hello, you know. If a guy like that can get a girl like her, hello, please, I'm praying about this. And I have done that. So if you do the math on that, I have prayed that prayer basically every week for 26 years. Now, maybe you have prayers that you've prayed with that kind of longevity and consistency, but in my whole life, uh, that would be the longest and most consistent prayer uh, that I have had. And so what happens, I think, is that when you long for something and you pray for it, over time, it, it becomes a kind of dreamy obsession almost. And it's, it's kind of like, well, here I go again. I'm praying for this again. And it ain't going to happen, you know. And it just sort of becomes like the dream that will never, uh, never happen. And so is it possible to hold marriage too high? I think that we can Tim Keller talks about this in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, which is an excellent book. I'd recommend it to you about singles who, in a desire to hold it high, hold it too high. And it actually gets in the way of it actually happening. So uh, I've tried my best over all these years to do it right and to approach it right and to pray and to do all the things um, that I have done. And so it's exciting for me now to think that in six days I begin a new wonderful chapter in my life and uh, to be married to the wonderful Christian woman that God has brought to me. So tonight I want to, uh, I want to, I want to share some reflections with you. And uh, some of this, most of this is testimonial, some of it is expositional briefly. Uh, but I just want to kind of share out of my own life experience, some thoughts about uh, ministry and singleness and marriage and purity. So here's the first one. Is that singleness, by the Bible, singleness and marriage are both gifts and therefore must be, by a biblical church, held in high regard, both of them. So I want to say to the single folks here, Don't waste your singleness. I want to say to the married folks here, don't waste your, uh, your marriage. Both of these from the Holy Spirit are, are said to us to be gifts to us from God. I think about over the years, I've spent so much time, I've read books and, you know, you go out to dinner and people, with me, it's like, you know, normally you go out with people, you say, well, how's the family? How are the kids? Well, I got none of that. So when I go out with people, they just are like, so you dating anybody, you know, and I'm reluctant to talk about that. And so I kind of him and haw. And then uh, here comes the, you know, sort of advice from the married people about, um, you know, how they landed the wonderful spouse that they have with them. And sometimes I'm more encouraged to listen than others uh, with that. But I think that I have spent too much time pining for what was not true in my life and not enough time enjoying what was true. Now, here's how the Bible says it on this subject. First Corinthians seven, verse seven, the apostle Paul writing as a single man, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. 
Now, if you see that word there, each has his own gift. It is the, it is the Greek word charisma. And it's the same word that when you get later in chapter 12, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, it's the same word. A charisma, literally, charismata, grace, gift. And who do we get grace gifts from? We get them from God. And Paul says, my singleness is a gift. Marriage is a charismata as well. And so we can ask the question, well, it's a gift, but who is this gift from? You know, oftentimes I think uh, we're accustomed to celebrating marriage as a gift, aren't we? Uh, so that when somebody has a five-year or ten-year anniversary, something like that, uh, we throw parties, we celebrate that. I, uh, even getting married, uh, there's a big party that's thrown. I've never seen a party thrown for a woman who's decided to stay single another year. You know, here comes the single woman. Here comes the single woman. Here comes the single woman. Woman, single woman. It, it doesn't work, does it? It's just silly. And yet, biblically, to be single or married in the eyes of God, both are living out a gift that God has given to them. And I think in the church, we have, in our, in our focusing on the family, we have overstated the importance of being married and we have understated the value of being single in the eyes of God. And I say that coming out of all these years of being single and being the pastor of a church being single, where you have all of these expectations and you have all of these tears, my own and others, related to a misunderstanding of the value and the dignity and the honor that ought to be bestowed on both of them. There's a lot of truth to that. Marriage, though, clearly is a gift, and we don't want to understate that. Genesis 2, from the beginning, God had a plan for marriage. For this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So marriage is not, in the day that we're living in, marriage is just not a good idea. It's not a culturally defined reality. It is something that God has defined and God has instituted. Marriage addresses at least two basic human needs, one of which is to multiply and to fill the earth, which is part of the creation mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve. And guess what you need to fill and multiply? You need a male and you need a female. And I'm not getting into it that any more than that right now, all right? But it's required. And so marriage is the context within which the creation mandate is fulfilled. The other thing that marriage provides that is very needed is what God himself identified in Genesis 2 when he said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable to him. And that's when God made Eve. And so we have that beautiful picture of Eve being made out of Adam as a helpmate, as a friend and a companion and a lover to Adam. So marriage is a wonderful gift, but marriage has responsibilities as well, doesn't it, married people? That was sort of a reluctant grumbling, I think, that I heard. Marriage has wonderful privileges, and marriage has very serious responsibilities, doesn't it, married people? 
I'm sure my clarification there energized the response a little bit more. And indeed, that's the case. And this is what Paul highlights, actually, as he argues for singleness as a valid choice uh, for kingdom purposes. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And he goes on in the chapter to point out that Marriage is a category that is passing away. The world is passing away. And Jesus made it clear in the, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no marriage. And so marriage itself is a fleeting, temporary uh, part of creation. And in Paul's assessment, it's one that the responsibilities of which it carries need to be very carefully considered, particularly as it relates to a life of undivided devotion to the Lord. That's what the text says. So for somebody that wants to have full devotion to the Lord and to do that in an undistracted way, they need to very carefully consider the responsibilities that marriage carries with it. And Paul would say, if you choose not to get married, you've done fine. It's okay. And in the church, it needs to be okay. And I say that to uh, alter the mindset of married people who look at sometimes single people and think, there's something, there's somebody that needs to be fixed. And I'm just the one to do it. And I say that to the single people who unfortunately, sometimes in the church, feel like, where's my place? And how do people view me? I've always felt of any church around, if there was a church that single people ought to feel comfortable in, it would be a church where the senior pastor is single, right? So over the years, I've thought, hey, you can't feel like a second-class citizen here. Um, and, and I hope that that's been a blessing. But I wonder if we can see here the principle that marriage and singleness are both gifts. Both of them have freedoms. Both of them have responsibilities. Now, the reason I say this is that it is important for us to view our status biblically. And single people, I got to tell you, there is nothing more annoying in all the world than whiny single Christians. You go out with your friends, your married friends, and your married friends are like, oh boy, here we go, I know what's coming. And you sit down for dinner, and after the pleasantries are out, what comes out? Oh, I wish I was married. Do you know anybody? Are you praying for me? I am so, so discontented. That's annoying. Just ask my friends how annoying that is. (laughs) So I want to say, singles, don't waste your singleness and don't look down on it. 
The Bible does not look down on it. By the way, our Savior was a single man. And so if there was a religion in the world where singleness ought to be held in high regard, it would be the one that people gather every week to sing praises to the single man in heaven who is the Savior of the world. So there is nothing second class about singleness. In fact, Christianity exalts it, and we ought to as well. So I would encourage you to not waste your singleness. Don't live your life like some people do, always thinking maybe this is the year. You know, I could plan this vacation, but what if I'm dating somebody? Or I could do this missions trip, but Bobby seems a little interested in me and I don't want to get anything in the way. And we live our lives often in this sort of state of suspended animation, pining and hoping that maybe this will be the year. Go on the vacation. Go on the missions trip. If you date a godly man, he'll find you attractive in doing that. That was a good place for an amen. (laughs) Which is a whole other point. You know, the key to getting a guy, I think also a girl, correct me if I'm wrong, Jennifer, is not to find the person that you're looking for, but to be the kind of Christian man or woman that a godly Christian man or woman would find attractive. That's the key. Which is all about the constructing within your own heart and your own passions a life that is lived to the love of God. Do that, and then trust the Lord uh, to bring somebody to you, and within, say, 28 to 30 years, he'll possibly do that. (laughs) So I'm presenting what I think is a biblically balanced perspective on this, okay? So that when you have singles, and they're like, if only I was married, and you have married people who are, if only I was single, You know, D. James Kennedy said that he said 90% of my counseling is single people who want to be married and married people who want to be single. (laughs) Explain that to me. Both are expecting something that God never intended to be the source of our contentment. When we look at marriage and think, oh, if only I was married, then I would be happy. It's a kind of blasphemy. You say, no, I'm I'm honoring my wife. No, you are demeaning her. She is in the image of God. She is not God. And you were made for God and finding contentment in Him. Paul said, he lists all the things in his life. He says, I count all these things as loss in comparison to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the sense of it. Married or single, doesn't matter. My contentment is not in this relationship or in this person. I am not looking to Jennifer to provide happiness in my life. Now, if she did, that would be fine. (laughs) But I am not resting in that. And I hope that she isn't hoping that in, in, in me. My family members would be like, girl, you are in serious trouble. (laughs) If he is going to be the center of your happiness. 
We were made for God. And God alone in Christ is the source of the Christian's happiness and contentment. In fact, that passage, Philippians 4, where Paul says, I have learned to be uh, content no matter what state I'm in. Uh, plenty or want. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's the encouragement to the, to the couple who's having a hard marriage. And that's the encouragement to the single woman who longs to be married. Not that if I'm married, I'll be happy, but rather I have Christ. And since I have Christ, I have all that I need. That's the key. All right, so that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Singleness and ministry go really well together. Singleness and ministry go really well together. My journey as a single pastor began in 1992. I was hired as an associate pastor at College Park Church down in Indianapolis. I did youth and worship and a few other things. And uh, I was 24. I was right out of seminary. I wasn't a freak yet. Okay? It was not, I mean, a single youth pastor, you hear that kind of thing. It's not that unusual. Um, and so it was kind of fun. And the senior pastor, Kimber Kaufman, took great delight in his sermons to point out to the congregation that Steve is single and would mock me in any manner of ways uh, during the sermons on a weekly basis. Some people maybe thought, boy, does that upset Steve? I viewed it as free advertising uh, myself. <laughs> So that was fine with me. But even back then, I was beginning to ponder the possibility of, of being single as a, as a senior pastor. And I remember back in, back in those days, I happened to be at an event where I happened to have the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Pastor John MacArthur. Many of you probably know John MacArthur. And I, uh, I, I had just like two minutes with him. And I could ask him anything that I wanted. And in that moment, nothing came to my mind. You ever have that? I just had brain freeze. I'm like, it's John MacArthur. Well, the only thing that came to my mind, I asked him, I said, what do you think about single pastors, single preachers? And I remember I was walking him to his car and he got to his car about that moment and he started to laugh and he turned to me and he goes, well, I suppose you're talking about yourself. And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he he, uh, he said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you have the gift of celibacy? And I thought a moment and I said, I hope not. <laughs> and he said, well, that means that you don't. <laughs> and he went on to say, it doesn't matter the marital status of the proclaimer of truth. It's not about the proclaimer anyway. The power comes from the word and from the spirit. And so don't back down is kind of what he said. And I sort of, you know, I was like, all right, must be true. John MacArthur said it. It was good advice. Well, some years later, then I became the senior pastor here at, uh, at Bethel. And this is now when I entered into the freak zone Because it's one thing to have a single youth pastor, but to be a single senior pastor was like more than many people could handle. And I can't tell you how many times I have met people, uh, you know, in the commons or wherever, and, and they're like, oh, you're the pastor. Oh, we're so, oh, so good to meet you. Oh, the service was wonderful. And 
Oh, it's so good to meet you. Is your, is your, is your wife here? So, where is she at now? Children, where, where are those adorable children at? And I would, I'd be like, I just, I know where this is going. So I, I would stand there and I'd be like, well, I'm single. Chirp. Chirp. And the person, they're dying a thousand deaths right there because they don't know what to say. And so they're like, oh, wow. I'm so sorry. I have had that conversation a thousand times. Even small children think I'm weird. I was, uh, I told you this is more testimonial than expositional tonight, and you're getting the sense of it. Uh, just a couple years ago, I was visiting some former members of our church who live in North Dakota. I happened to be there doing some ministry, so I stopped by and uh, spent some time with them, and they have just a tribe of, of all girls. And uh, we were going to have lunch at their, at their home. And so we go into the kitchen, and the girls are all there, you know, and they're precocious little girls. And, and their six-year-old daughter says, Mommy, is he married? And the mom said, No. Because they had introduced me as Pastor Steve. No, he's single. And she said, matter of fact, matter of factly, that's odd. <laughs> Just like that. That's odd. Now listen, I have written a biblical theology in defense of singleness and pastoral ministry. It's available online. I'm not going to get into that. I don't have time to get into all of that. You can read it yourself if you would like. Uh, But I want to say this. There are massive advantages to being single in ministry, not just pastoral ministry. I mean, we think about down through the years how God has used single men and women in ministry all over the world. And so many of our heroes of the faith, if you really look at it, were single themselves. And the freedom that that provides and the undistracted, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, ministry that you can have is a wonderful asset to a church. And it bothers me where there are so many churches where to even consider a gifted single man is completely out of the question. It ought not be that. This is the undistracted life that Paul spoke of. And I would be very happy if one of the fruits of my two decades of being a single pastor is that in our spheres, our pond of Christianity, where people know about us, know about the church and all of that, where maybe it cracks the door to a biblical position on singleness and ministry. I believe there is an unnecessary and unbiblical bias against it. And I would footnote Jesus and Paul as great examples. So, I say to you, whoever may be watching this online, if you're single and you think God has called you to ministry, even pastoral ministry, even senior pastoral ministry, you don't lack anything. 
You have the Word of God in your hand. You have the Spirit of God in your heart. Then you can have the blessing of God on your ministry. It can happen. And I hope it does. All right. Here's the third thing. I want to say purity is worth it. Purity is worth it. And we live in such a sexualized culture that I want to speak with an extra measure of frankness uh, to this issue. Uh, and I think that it is needed. Here is what 1 Thessalonians 4 says. Verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. I have been fighting this battle for purity for 28 years. Ever since my first real girlfriend in 10th grade, 28 years. It's hard to believe, honestly, that it has been that long. And many of you have been out of the dating scene and assume it's just as wonderful as it was back in the 50s when you got married, or maybe the 60s for some of you, whatever. Um, You know, boy meets girl, sit on the front porch with dad watching, everyone's squeaky clean. I know it wasn't like that in the 50s, certainly not in the 60s. But I have been in the Christian dating scene. And I'm here to tell you that even in the Christian dating scene, it is frightening how low the standards are for what is acceptable amongst even Christian people that are dating. Shocking at times. And I don't mean to sound pompous with that or in any way... I'm a sinner too, okay? But I'm here to tell you, it's, it, I've called it, it's the wild, wild west. And you're like, oh, no, it can't be because I'm on eHarmony and the commercials seem so holy. Or Christian Mingle or whatever you're doing. Um, it is really, really uh, scary out there. And... If, if you would have told me when I was 18 years old, you know, you're still going to be single in your 40s, I'd have been like, what? You know, where's the gun? Shoot me now. <laughs> and, but I would have taken comfort in one thing. I would have thought to myself, well, you know what? At least, at least the sexual temptation will be easy to deal with. Because when you're old and nothing working right, you know, all those hormonal levels are shot, they're gone. You're like a eunuch uh, when you're in the 40s. 
That's what I would have thought. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in some ways, I think it is harder when you are older. Because now you're an adult and you have certain freedoms and there's a certain sort of cultural expectation of what adults do. Let's be adults about this, which is sometimes code for let's uh, take this a little further. And it has been a very eye-opening and a very, very difficult challenge. And I'm a pastor of a church, and I'm here to tell you, it has been extremely difficult. So in spite of all of that, though, I have learned a few lessons along the way, and that's what I want to share right now. And by the way, you, you married people are like, well, this sermon certainly isn't for me. Most of the people that I know that are having sex outside of marriage are married people. And so I think you need to pay attention as well. Here's the first thing. Nothing is more helpful than dating committed Christian people. And I say this to every single and every young person that is here. Over the years, I have been blessed. I truly have. I have been blessed to spend through dating, to spend time with some wonderful Christian uh, women who have uh, had influence on me, who've been a blessing to me. And this has been very helpful to me in the battle for purity because one of the things that you get with a committed Christian uh, person is that if they are a committed Christian, there is a mutual priority of purity. And that goes a long ways to ever making it in the battle for purity. Because if you date a marginal Christian, or you date a kind of like in name only Christian, and there are tons of them out there. So the old, hey, are you a Christian? I am. Oh, we're good. I can tell my mom that we're fine and I can just go ahead right now because he said that he is a Christian. That, that makes about as much difference as nothing. Do not date somebody Unless you see in them a strong passion for the Lord. Because what happens is, inevitably, you get dating, you get warm and fuzzy for each other, you begin to reach out towards each other, and if that person is not as committed to purity as you are, even your own standards will seem weak. That's how powerful sexual desire is. And I just want, I, I wish that I could just pound that, take our teenagers and just, is there a download that you can just stick it in there and let them, you know, I will only date a committed Christian because that will save you so much sorrow and so much temptation. I have been blessed to date many, many fine Christian women who have been a blessing to me in this regard. I would say it this way, the caliber of the Christian character that you date will largely determine your purity. So date well. Date highly committed Christians. Secondly, set wise boundaries, communicate them right away, and stick to them. Now, I need to speak with a little bit of frankness. I feel a burden for this. 
Because every day what's communicated through the media is not a celebration of purity or virginity. It is a, it is the demeaning of it, right? It is the mocking of it. You know, what's wrong with the 40 year old virgin? He doesn't need a wife. He needs a sexual experience. And this is just pounded home and pounded home. The, the hurdler at the Olympics who let it leak that she's a virgin and all of the uproar. What? That's the world that we live in. Where are we going to hear a celebration of purity? I'd like you to hear it tonight. And so to that end, I want to speak with a little bit of frankness regarding the setting of boundaries. God made certain body parts to do certain things. It's just the way that it is. And those sexual parts must be avoided. Because once they do what they're supposed to do, it's the point of no return. And I want to say to you, if you will draw those boundaries, and and if they, can I just say it frankly, if you never touch those parts with somebody that you're seeing or dating, you will arrive at your wedding day a virgin and with purity and a precious gift to give to your spouse. Now, we're a church of grace. We believe in the gospel. We understand that there is forgiveness. And for, for those who maybe are, as I say that, are feeling like, oh, no, I'm here to tell you right now, there is forgiveness for those that repent. And we praise God that there is second chances and there's healing that can come through Jesus Christ. But the call of Scripture is to purity. And I would set those boundaries early. Don't touch the sexual places. I call them the no-fly zones. Communicate that early. I did with Jennifer. Here are the no-fly zones. We do not go there. And what happens then is it develops trust. Because the other person doesn't have to wonder, well, what's he doing? Where's this going? I wonder what's going to happen. Is he intending for this to lead somewhere? Ladies, if a man does that to you, just marry him right away, okay? I'm saying set the boundaries is what I mean by that. Because you have found, you have found somebody uh, that has self-control. And if they don't have self-control before you're married, why do you think they're going to have self-control after? And what does that vow mean that you make before God, forsaking all others? It requires self-control. You need to see that in him or her before you're married. And Jennifer and I had the talk very early on. It cleared the air on the matter. And it just has allowed us to now we still, can I say this? Can I be honest? We, we, we have to work at that. At 44. It is extremely hard. And if you walk into it naively, like, oh, if you're godly, it won't be a problem. That is a very naive perspective. It requires God's help, prayer, dating somebody who's committed to the purity, boundaries that are set early and you stick to them. And then you wait to see if God calls you together to be married. And if you break up, well, now, now there's really not so much that you have to feel uh, regret over. 
And over the years, I mean, I've been, I've been dating since I was 16. And I have things I look back on with embarrassment and immaturity that I had over the years. But to arrive on my wedding day um, with virginity is a precious gift and one to be celebrated. I want to say one more thing on this because I find it also helpful. Your conscience is a, is a big help. When that conscience starts to blink yellow, like, uh-oh, or do, do, do something, you're, heed the warning. I want to throw that out as well. Here's the third thing regarding purity. You can do everything that I've said so far, and you're not likely to make it. You can set the boundaries. You can date godly people. There is one thing that if, if you don't have it, you're toast. And it's this principle. Stoke the greater pleasure. Stoke the greater pleasure. And this applies across the board. I don't care if you're married or single. Because sexual desire is such a strong desire. And God made it that way so that we would fulfill the creation mandate. That we would fill the earth. And it is a good desire. It is a holy desire. It is a blessing. But... My fleshly desire is not to be pure. My fleshly desire is to be impure. And in the right set of circumstances, with the right person, on whatever business trip, or whatever night out with whoever, where something is said and one thing leads to another, I have known committed Christians who have suddenly fallen into sexual sin. And it is because it's, it's, it's not that they are not trying to, to minimize the sexual sin, uh, desire. Rather, they are failing to stoke and to build into an inferno the desire to please God. I have got to have a greater desire to please God than to satisfy myself sexually illicitly. Now, within marriage, it's a holy one. Burn that inferno. Married people have a great time tonight. I'm happy for you. That is holy and godly and the marriage bed is pure and it's honorable and we're for that. This is not a sort of prudish church where all things sexual are dirty. I don't want any young person here going to be married with a sense that what we're going to do here is evil. It is holy. It is good. Read the Song of Solomon. Okay? However, if I allow that desire... If I stoke that desire and I'm not stoking the godly desire, I will go the direction of where the passion is. And the, 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 the key to this is to starve the desire for illicit sexual fulfillment outside of marriage and to feed and to create an inferno of desire to please the Lord. Can I do that again? Starve the illicit to death. Don't give it anything. Feed, feed the desires to please the Lord. But Pastor Steve, I can't do it. I'm 19 years old. It's too much. 
Do it for 26 years and then come talk to me. That's what I want to say. <laughs> then come talk to me. You can do it. Now, you, can you do it on your own? You can't do it on your own. On our own, we don't make it to Tuesday. But with God's help and the Spirit of God, I'm not talking to unbelievers. Unbelievers cannot do it. Can't. I'm talking to a Christian audience where the Spirit of God is within you. And the tools and the assets that God gives through His Word and through the church and through prayer and through worship and these other means by which I wake up in the day and I say, God, help me today. I want to, uh, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, for example. is a prayer to pray, in a sense, every day so that I want what God wants in my life. I'll tell you what you can't do. You don't starve it by undressing in your mind every pretty girl that you see. You don't starve it uh, by uh, viewing pornography. You don't starve it by making entertainment choices where you get to watch men do with women what you wish you could do. Because if you feed that desire with that kind of thing, and then lo and behold, you get a girlfriend... Now all of a sudden you have this raging inferno inside of you. And one of two things is going to happen. The godly girl is going to see that and you are out the door in five seconds. Or you're going to date a marginal Christian girl and you are going to fall. Starve the one, feed the other. And overwhelm the lesser desire with the greater desire for God to be honored in my life. I cannot tell you how important that is. And that's why these daily disciplines and the daily Christian walk and the things that we sort of, you know, we talk about, but we easily dismiss are so critical to making it in the Corinth that we live in. You men that drive every day by the billboards on 8094 know exactly what I'm talking about. If you are driving down that road and there is not faith in your heart, guess where your eyes and your mind will go. And then you arrive at work and the pretty little thing says, well, that's a very fine outfit you're wearing today. And you think to yourself, my wife didn't say nothing to me as I walked out the door and she kind of looks like the girl on the billboard. And now the imagination kicks in and this happens all the time. I want to say that purity is worth it. I am blessed to marry a woman who has successfully fought that fight. And we can't wait for our honeymoon. We can't. Can't wait. I have so much I want to say. You know, as a pastor, I can tell you this. I'll just throw this in. I think I can tell when a couple has been pure and and not pure when I do the wedding. I've done many weddings where they're so lackadaisical. And I'm like, where are you going on your honeymoon? Where are we going on our honeymoon? I haven't thought about that. I don't know. And I'm like, what? And then you do do other couples and they're like rabbits in heat. You know, they can't (laughs) wait. And I think to myself... I think I know what's going on here, right? I think I know what's going on here. And I just put that out as a motivation to purity. Young people, I want God to be honored 
in this phase of my life, and I have this opportunity to talk freely with the congregation. Purity is worth it. And the battle and the fight now is worth it. And your friends, can they can go and have their parties and touch all the spots and do their things. And you might think, wouldn't that be great? Take it from the old virgin pastor. It will be worth the wait. Amen. Fight it. It is worth it. More to say, but the last thing I want to say is I want to say thank you to Bethel. When I was 29 years old, you took a chance on a single, on a bachelor pastor. And there were other churches, I think, in our community thinking, have they lost their minds? What are they doing? There have been many challenges along the way, but you have been very wonderful to me. I want to say thank you for sharing with me in many moments of loneliness over the years by kindness and having me in your home and dinners and all the rest. You have blessed me in many, many ways. I want to thank you for your prayers. I hear it all the time. Oh, I know you want to get married. We're praying for, for a, a wife for you. I think Jennifer actually didn't exist. God just like, she, by prayer, she just materialized. It was the prayers of this church and my mom. Uh, that did it. <laughs> so thank you for sharing in our joy in this moment. Thank you for so many things. We want God to be honored in our wedding and more importantly in our marriage. Now, one last thing. I'm about to get married. We're about to get married. If you observe us and it seems that we are maybe more frisky than you think appropriate for a pastor, I want you to remember... We're newlyweds. <laughs> if you perceive in us that we are fighting and acting carnally, I want you to remember that we are newlyweds. We don't know what we're doing. We are brand new to this. And we are going to make all the same mistakes that all so many of the rest of you made as we try to figure out how to be husband and wife. But we are very, very grateful and very happy to be married in such a wonderful church family. Thank you very much. We love you. Amen.